All right, we've been asked to uh, light the love candle tonight. And uh, if you want, looks like it'll stay lit. Okay, and um, tonight we've elected to read a love poem from God, or love letter from God, I'm sorry. My beautiful child, whom I love so much, you may not know me well, but I know everything about you. I know when you sit down and when you stand up. I know what you do and when you do it. I am familiar with all your ways. Child, you are made perfectly in my image. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. I am not some distant and angry father. Rather, I am near you always, with you wherever you go. It's my deepest desire to lavish more love and grace on you. Every good gift comes from my hand. I am your provider, and I will meet your every need through faith. Oops. <laughs> um, my plan for your future is filled with purpose and everlasting hope, love, peace, and joy. My thoughts towards you are as countless as the seashore sand. I rejoice over you as singing, and I will never stop doing good to you. Trust me, trust my words, trust that you are my treasured possession. I desire to establish you with all my heart and all my soul. I desire to show you great and marvelous things. My child, if you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. Delight in me, and I will give you the deepest desires of your heart. After all, it is I who gave you those desires to begin with. I'm able to do far more than you could possibly imagine. I'm your greatest encourager. The Father who comforts you in all your troubles when you are brokenhearted, there I am close to you. Just as a shepherd carries his lamb, so have I carried you. Do not worry, for one day I will wipe away every tear from your eye, every pain you have suffered. I am your Father, and I love you just as I have loved my son, Jesus. Understand, it is in Jesus my love for you is revealed. He is, in fact, the exact representation of my love and my being. He died so that you and I could once again be reconciled. I gave up everything I loved so I might gain your love in return. So, child, come to me. Return to me daily. Have, I have always been your loving father, and I will always be. My question to you is, will you be my child? I am waiting for you. Every morning, I wait anew. Forever love your Abba Father. May we pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, so much for loving us so well. May we take that love and give it to others in hope, joy, and peace. And may the way we choose to live our lives be our love letter to you. Amen. Beautiful. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Sherry. May our lives be our love letter back to you. Amen. 
Would you join me in Matthew chapter 2? That's in the second half of your Bible, the New Testament. Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be looking at a familiar journey in this Christmas season. But before we get there, I want to tell you about another journey being made as we speak. After a 70-day trip, 44 of those days were unplanned after a four-wheeler accident. And just shy of a week in the hospital, the rest of those days were spent in our house, being loved on, prayed for, and cared for by this community and the community of God's people all over the world. But after this 70-day trip, our dear friend and brother, Ramon, got on a plane this morning and began his journey home. Amen? And can we give a clap? Yes. So last night, it was asked of him, hey, what's the first thing you're going to do when you see your family? What's the first meal you're going to have? And he said, I'm going to kiss my wife, I'm going to kiss my kids, and I don't really care what happens next. And I said, that's a pretty good answer. And the thing about this journey back to Russia is that it's 26, you heard that right, 26 hours this morning. At 5 a.m., we left the house. He got through the airport on a flight from Dallas to New York, long layover in New York, and then New York to Moscow at nine hours, and then a four-hour drive to his home. But for Ramon this morning, it was one that he's happy to make. 26 hours, he was amped up for it because love is the engine that's driving him and keeping him going. He's thinking about Angela and the kids. He's thinking about that reunion. Love is moving him each step to close the gap, to close the distance between he and his loved ones. This evening, as we unpack and unfold another journey, we're going to unfold a long sentence that speaks of love. And it all begins like Rahman's journey begins with this thought. Love is a journey toward another. And every time I typed that into my Word doc, the blue squiggly line came and said, don't you mean another? And what I mean is, no, it's a journey toward an other. God is being in community, in relationship. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There is an other. That's the object of love. There is an other, a person beyond yourself that is moving you, drawing you to close the gap, to close the distance, to make a connection. So in every one of my messages, I try to give you at least one big idea to hang the whole thing around. Tonight, we're going to unfold a big sentence, and this is the first piece of that puzzle. Love is a journey toward an other. Sometimes it's long and arduous and 26 hours. Sometimes it's brief and joyful and you connect with an other for just a season of your life. But if you're tuned into the frequency of the God who is love and being itself, you find an engine and a drive to move toward this person to form a connection and you find life welling up between the two of you. So as we unfold this statement, we're going to unfold another journey. We're going to take it in 
pieces, and hopefully it's familiar to you if you're familiar with the Christmas and Advent story. So join me in Matthew chapter 2. We're going to read the first two verses first. So after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi, that would be magicians or astrologers or astronomers, and in those days, if you were a learned, wise person, you were looking at the heavens because can you imagine a world with no street lamps? And can you imagine for centuries the wonder and awe of the heavens above you? So these wise, learned men were studying the stars and they were curious as to what they were trying to speak to us down below. And they came from the east to Jerusalem. And they asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Because by the way, if you want to see a Jewish king, you go where the Jewish capital is, right? You go to Jerusalem. That's where the movers and shakers are. They saw something in the sky, so they go to where it's all happening, Jerusalem. They said, we saw his star, the king's star, when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, the study of the stars was undergirded by at least two beliefs. The first is that the universe is all connected. Many of them thought that they were in the center of it, but they looked at the world around them in wonder and awe, and they asked the question, if it's all connected, what is this and that and this and this and this and this? saying about the whole thing. You with me on this? Think of this human desire to explain and comprehend the unseen, invisible forces that are at work, the unknown forces at play, and the divine in our midst. There's this innate curiosity to say, I think there's something more going on here. That's the first belief guiding these magi or magicians and astrologers. The whole thing is connected. Second belief undergirding them is this. If something significant happens, because it's all connected, right? If something significant is happening on earth, then it's going to be reflected in heaven, right? If a king is born, if a bad omen is happening right around here, then it's probably going to show us some sign of it out there and vice versa. If something's crazy in the heavens, they think, ooh, what's going to happen on earth? Good thing there's no more people that believe that and think that and try to unpack that mystery today, right? We can't shame them because when you are grasping at the mystery of life, God still meets those who seek him and God is hovering over their journey from the east all the way to Jerusalem. Could it have been a comet? Maybe. Could it have been a supernova? Maybe. There's some historical indication that in 7 BC, Saturn and Jupiter were really close to one another and visible from Earth like three times that year. If you really dove deep, some scholars think that 
Each planet represented royalty and even the Jewish people. So some have hypothesized that you put those two things together, they get Jewish king. But regardless of what it is, this is what I'm convinced Matthew's trying to show us with these strangers and travelers from the east. Something is so significant that heaven and earth got their attention and they were so moved that they made the journey. Matthew doesn't care where they came from. He cares where they're going. Are you with me on this? He doesn't care what books they've read or written or how good their theology is. He cares that in this present moment, heaven and earth has got their attention and they're headed in the right direction. I think something that has plagued much of our American evangelical churches is this idea that church is a place where you're very clearly in or you're very clearly out. And there's some sense in which you're either with Jesus or you've denied Jesus. There is room for some kind of, are you in on life or are you in on death? However, I think what's most helpful in faith communities is to have a little bit more of a gray line to welcome the kinds of magi that make a costly and lengthy journey to our doors, and we say, are your face and your feet headed in the right direction? And they say, I think so. And you say, well, let's figure it out together and walk together as long as they and you are headed in this direction together. When we say at the Neighborhood Church, we're following Jesus together for God's kingdom in our neighborhood. Are we a community that can run with the fastest and walk with the slowest? Because the speed is less important than the direction. For our children, who we say in our church, we're discipling future disciples. Can we trust the work of the Spirit to do what we can't? to draw them, woo them, transform them, guide them, lead them, and let us do what we can in walking with them step by step to show them the person of Jesus and the way of Jesus, modeled by our lives and spoken by our words. Can we run with the fastest and walk with the slowest? Whoever shows up, can we honor the trajectory of their journey? And can we make room for people that may not always fit so neatly into our boxes. I think the other thing Matthew's trying to tell us is there's a whole mess of Judeans in Jerusalem that have no idea their Messiah is born a few miles up the road. But these guys made a long journey to see what all the fuss is about because they're leaning in and paying attention, which is why love is a journey toward another that's also always costly. The people in Jerusalem, the people in Bethlehem, had the king they've been waiting for right in front of their face. But the ones who were paying attention gave of their time and their resources and their energy and their attention to make a long, difficult, arduous journey from wherever east to this unfamiliar territory. You got to know it cost them. Yes? but they were willing to make the journey. Matthew does not say 
this is interesting, how many wise men came. But if I said to any person on the street, how many wise men visited Jesus, what would they say? Three. Why do you think we got three? Oh my goodness. This nine-year-old just said, because they gave three presents, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which is at the end of our passage this evening. That's a good hint. There was maybe three, or maybe it was one guy that just made the journey and everybody else died trying, and he had all their gold, and he's like, I guess you can have Jimmy's gold because he's not with me anymore. And maybe it's one very generous guy. But Matthew doesn't tell us how many there are, but it's a good intuition to think uh, maybe there is three that made it. Matthew also doesn't tell us that they were royal. We three what? Kings of Orient are. We don't know that they're royal. It's so funny how these stories just start to collapse on themselves and work their way in tradition. Because the other thing that we're not told in Matthew is that they went to a manger or a stable. Matthew actually doesn't say that in this text that we're looking at in this moment. In fact, later we'll see that Herod is going to get all up in a tizzy, a violent, horrific nightmare of a tizzy. And he's going to look at every male born within a two-year time frame. So maybe Mary, Joseph, and Jesus made their way out of the stable area. And maybe they were just chilling as a family of three in a house in Bethlehem. When they get this surprising knock on the door that one, two, three, or 300 of these learned seekers made this journey. What Matthew does show us is that this child was worth the cost. Do you see in Matthew chapter 2, later on we're going to see they were filled with joy when they saw him. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. What Matthew wants us to see is that we don't know where they came from or how many they were, but they were willing to make the journey and it was worth the cost. Because love, though difficult and hard in the journey, is always worth the cost, even when it hurts, right? That's why we keep showing up to close the gap. Oh, thanks. You folded it? Thanks, dude. I appreciate it, man. Good. All right, Zach, you go take that secret back there, and we're going to look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 3. It's on our screen now. When King Herod heard this, that he was looking for the king, he was what? Disturbed. Why? Because when they asked him, hey, can you show us where the king of the Jews is? Herod looks around and says, dude, right here in front of you, the guy you're asking, are you being serious right now? It's me. Look at my robes, right? But this is what's an interesting note as well. And all Jerusalem with him. Why do you think that they're so disturbed too? Because nobody wants to live through a coup or a civil war. There's a kingly controversy that's spreading like wildfire through the channels of gossip and speculation. If these guys saw something written in the heavens, we've got trouble brewing. The real thing 
the real king, the real Messiah, and this is fascinating, was born in occupied land under the nose of another king who was under the nose of a mighty emperor, and he's somewhere in a small house on the edge of a mighty emperor in an out-of-the-way town, and yet his very presence is starting to turn the world upside down. Christmas is a radical, wild, fraught story that this fragile, pretend king who's threatened and afraid is going to try to kill this child not just because he wants people to get saved and go to heaven, but because he has a claim not just on God's people Israel, but this king has a claim on the whole world to bring God's kingdom. And the problem with people in power that are so obsessed with their own kingdom is that they don't care if it's God's. As long as it's not theirs, they're going to want your allegiance. They're going to want you to die trying for their cause and their way. And they're going to get you to co-opt in every kind of way that may smell like or look like biblical values or love or fill in the blank. But if it's not God's king and God's kingdom, tried and true, all of these Herods will come and go wanting our allegiance that is only due the child king in a forgotten place, but those who seek him will know. Love is a journey toward an other that's always costly and sometimes complicated because sometimes it's hard to discern what's really happening. Which king in my life is getting prime position? How disturbed am I like Jerusalem in those days? It's sometimes complicated. I love this thought because we don't like complications. We don't like when things get messy. And after 400 years of prophetic silence from the Old Testament to the New Testament, after all that waiting, after all that praying, this is the moment that God wants to send his king to be born under Herod, under Caesar, in an empire, on an occupied land, And it's as if God is saying, if I waited any longer, the next guy would come. This Herod in Luke chapter 2 is going to die shortly after Jesus is born. But his son is going to be the Herod that crucifies him and nails him to a tree because he doesn't want Jesus to be king either. God understands complications. God understands mess. God understands how if you waited for the right time, you're never going to do it. God enters into mess, God enters into complications, and shows us that he can still work with it. Because when we're complicated and with, when we're messy, God still works with us. God's not afraid of mess. God's not afraid of silence. And we are, aren't we? 400 years between Malachi and Matthew. God's not afraid of silence, and God takes his time. This baby that's born in the stable, these wise men, magi, come and they give gifts. And just like the shepherds, they're filled with joy and they go back home and they wait for this king and his 30 years of obscurity. 
And then when Jesus starts his ministry, he has a pretty awesome baptism, and he does 40 more days of silence and obscurity. And we're all looking at our watches being like, bro, are you serious right now? You're 30, and now you're going to take a sabbatical? All you did was get baptized. Maybe God is not afraid of upsetting expectations. Maybe God isn't afraid to take his time. And maybe the discipline for us is to let God be at work in the mess, in his way, and in his timing. Matthew 2, verses 4 to 8. Herod had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, and he asked them where the Messiah was to be born, because I guess he doesn't know the book of Micah very well. So they say, found it, and the think tank reads Micah 5, 2. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Who thinks he's going to go and worship him? Later, we learn he's going to hedge his bets and murder infants born within a two-year period in that region because violence is so uncreative and so threatened that they can't think of any other way. It's anti-love. Love is a journey toward an other that's always costly, sometimes complicated, and never exploitative. If you have your readers on, you might see that asterisk defining the word exploitative. It says making use of a situation or treating others unfairly in order to gain an advantage or benefit. Have you ever felt exploited, used? Maybe you feel this in your work. The truth is that our culture that is so used to procuring goods and services, no matter the cost or repercussions, that sometimes our culture can disciple people to use other people just like a good or service to get something in return. Herod or our culture asks, what can I get? Love asks, what can I give? Do you see the difference? Oh, Christmas is a hard time for God to form in us the right question. Our culture says, what can I get? And love asks, what can I give? We can watch all the Christmas movies all day about the spirit of giving, but when push comes to shove, am I asking myself mostly, what can I get? Or am I asking, what can I give? Herod asks, how can I use you to get what I want, for me to be who I want by our relationship and status? Herod asks, how can I use you? Jesus asks, how can I love you? 
How can I serve you, Peter, as I wash your feet? How can I serve you, Judas, even though you will betray me? Herod says, how can I use the Magi so I can murder this threat? And Jesus over there in the corner will grow up to see the broken and the hurting and say, what can I do for you? How can I heal you, help you, serve you, love you? Finally, these questions. Our culture says, who deserves it? And the kingdom of God says, who needs it? Too often we want to run the background check. And I'm not saying to be unwise in your generosity and your giving. I'm saying that some indiscrimination is necessary because God calls the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. And at some level, people got to eat. Our culture says, who deserves it? And Jesus says, who needs it? What would our marriages look like? Our parenting look like? Our mission as a church look like? If we ask those questions, what can I give instead of get? How can I love instead of use? Who needs it instead of who deserves it? Just think about your interpersonal relationships. Am I using you or am I loving you? Am I getting from you or am I reciprocating? The thing about marriage, we always like to talk about in Christian culture how the uh, wives must submit to their husbands. And you know what's really a funny punchline? To begin that chapter, Paul writes... Submit to one another as to Christ. The headline says, submit to one another. So when wives are submitting to their husbands, the ideal is that the husbands say, oh, well, let me serve you like Christ served the church by using my power underneath to elevate, to lift, and to submit to one another as Christ submitted. The problem is when this gets out of whack and when one person is doing All the getting and none of the giving. No wonder what we're doing is not a journey so much of love anymore. It's something else entirely. And it causes breakdowns within our intimate relationships, our parenting relationships. How can I love you instead of fixing you? (laughs) How can I meet you on your terms instead of berating you? Because I expect you to be someone or something you're not. Ouch. This is getting too real for me, so let's move on. (laughs) Here's the alternative. Matthew chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. After they heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Can we pause real quick? I never knew this. I'd heard this story a million times. Never occurred to me until this week. These wise men needed Herod and his men to tell them where Jesus was. Can we just stop and say that God used Herod in some small way to direct these people? To show them a costly journey worth taking? This is wild. Verse 10. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. 
On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. There they are, the famous gifts. We know what gold is, but I don't think until essential oils, I never knew what frankincense and myrrh were. But this is the proper response to the presence of Jesus. Watch this. You ready? It's not on a slide. It's an opening that gets filled to overflowing. This is the life of God in a nutshell. A continual response to divine love and sacrifice. We see it on the cross. We see the new life possible in resurrection. And we say, just maybe I can open myself to this. I want to give my life to you. And Jesus says, in return, I'm going to give you my life. And I'm going to fill you. And what we read in 1 John chapter 4 is that if you love God, you're living in God. And God is living in you. And nobody's ever seen God, but when you're loving out of that overflow, people connect the dots and they say, this is what God's love is like. And you say, yes. And then they open their heart and then they're filled with love. And then it spills out to the next person. And wouldn't you know it? Maybe a kingdom movement starts at the feet of a savior when they go back to everybody else and say, our hearts were filled to overflow that all of a sudden gold and frankincense and myrrh mattered a lot less than the thing I'm about to to tell you there is a king and he can welcome us and we can bow down to him and find that he doesn't rule over us and uh, oppress us he lifts and liberates us and we find life abundant and it's worth sharing this is what's happening here so how do you come to Jesus what do you feel led to offer him and I think it's important that the twists and turns and darkness and uncertainty is absolutely part of the journey. And I'm sorry you were told that coming to Jesus was going to be a cakewalk and you just jog on through. But the story of God's people is always a story through uncertainty and twists and darkness and intuition, but when you find the presence of divine love in the face of Christ, to open yourself to it, to be filled to overflowing, makes every bit of it worth it. Amen? That's why love is a journey toward an other that's always costly, sometimes complicated, never exploitative, and can't help but give. Last week was our rock Christmas party. It was a wonderful time. There's over 400 people that came through. 700 gifts were given. More on that in just a moment. And part of what we do at this community center that we call a rock, just up the road, and where we're headed, Lord willing, us kids to go and party in just a little bit. The thing about this is that while we're gathering up the gifts that these people had registered for and we're coming to, to get, while we're gathering those up as they arrive on site for the party, we do a quick presentation of the good news for everybody who comes that they can find this life in Jesus. And the way we started this presentation in English and in Spanish was to ask the children sitting there in front of us, if you had one million dollars and you could give a gift to your mom or dad, what would you give them? And I'll be honest with you, they didn't shoot back answers as quickly as I thought. 
We had to say, what would you do? A million dollars, that's a lot. And then one kid would say, a dog. And we're like, for your parents or for you? And he's like, for all of us. And he's like, okay, yeah, but I see you, kid. You want a dog. And we say, think bigger. I don't know any million-dollar dogs. One girl would say, dolls. And we say, again, again, it's for your parents. And they said, okay. Then they got it. And every group said to a person, a house, a car. I would buy them so much food. Nobody's talking about water slide from the second story downstairs. They're thinking, what can I give my parents? Because I love them and they've given so much. I'll give them the biggest things I can think of. We just can't help but give. Now, this week, this Saturday, this morning, those of you serving in the clothes closet, we were telling the food pantry in the clothes closet every third Saturday that we got these gifts left over. Last week, those that didn't make it to the party, they came, they were called, and they picked up the ones that they couldn't get at the party, and we were just saying there's still more, so start getting rid of them. A woman, I'm told, came, and with tears in her eyes, receiving these gifts, said, I've never been able to give gifts to my nieces and nephews. Thank you. She says, I've tried to get for my own kids and our immediate family, and when I look around, I realize there's no more left in the budget. And what moved her the most is her capacity now to be able to give, not get. That's what love does. Then her son, having picked these gifts out for his cousin, starts to wrap them by himself. I'm sure it was even better than I could do. I can't wrap a boxed present to save my life. And he's loving it. And he's wrapping all of these things. That's what love does. Because he can't wait to give this to his cousins. This woman called her sister so that these other kids could come, so they could give more, so they could get more and receive this. And one family came this morning that were there at the party last Saturday. And they told our team that they had one present under the Christmas tree. And do you know what present it was? It could have been the present that you wrapped and gave to the rock. Because that's the only present they received. And that's the only present a week later that was living in the Christmas tree. So if this is being recorded and our other churches that partner with the rock hear this, I'm sorry, not sorry. Because our team said, please take more. And she goes, really? Like one? And they said, here's this box. Because that's what love does. Because we can choose to live in a universe of scarcity or abundance. And the God who is love, who holds all things together, is a God of abundance. But the problem comes when we kink the hose and we refuse to be a channel through which God and his love wants to give and reach out and make the connection, make that journey from one person to an other. Matthew 2.12. Finally, having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. 
The journey is mysterious, long, challenging, twists and turns, but it's always surrounded by God. There's something about these Christmas narratives that are being orchestrated like a master symphony by the God who is always somehow behind the scenes, but always at work in big ways if we have eyes to see. Our life and our love is a gift given from the source. The dream that they had was God's intervention to protect them, to protect the Holy Family, and even in suffering, even when the worst happens with Herod, we have to reckon with the fact that this thing is still headed toward life and love and redemption, which is why finally, love is a journey toward an other that's always costly, sometimes complicated, never exploitative. I know I've said that several different ways. It's a hard word. And it can't help but give. Why? Because it's given by the God who is love. Every time you're giving at cost to yourself, every time you're giving and not exploiting, every time you're working through the mess, it's because you're connected to the power source that is love. And here's the thing. The degree to which we stay connected is the degree to which our journey continues to have purpose and matters, even when it's hard. So I've got a story one more statement to finish up our big sentence and some questions before we respond in communion. Here's my story. I have a dear friend, his name is John Bauer, and he is the pastor of a church called Normandy Church in Lake Highlands. It's a church not unlike ours. They're smaller than your big Dallas megachurches, and they share a building. And he had an experience in mid-October that put all of us on edge and on alert and on our knees to pray for him. Because mid-October we get a message that he had fainted. And somewhere in the course of getting him out of this situation into the hospital, he comes to and he starts receiving these tests. And pretty early on that evening they realize that he has a brain bleed. He's 40 years old, and he's communicating with his wife who's staying with their kids because it happened this fast. It was this scary. He gets rushed to the hospital, and as he's coming to, he's realizing, oh, this is just one of those things, and he's texting his wife and updating her, convinced that they'll send him home in a short amount of time, and it wasn't until they put him in a wheelchair and started wheeling him away that it started to sink in that he ain't going anywhere. He was being admitted. And he said, even the journey to the room was ridiculous. The orderly literally banged him into the wall a couple times and goes, sorry, sorry. And he goes, just got a head injury here, man. Thanks. And he's kind of laughing about it, but the further and further he goes down this hallway, he realizes Oh, this is something. Now, it's in this moment, and I heard him say this this week, that I just stopped dead in my tracks. Because even through all the twists and turns and the bumps and bruises and the frustration and the concern, he had this question on the tip of his tongue, and it's this. Jesus, how are you coming to me? 
the when matters. In a wheelchair, bumped into a wall, brain bleed, texting his wife, unsure of the next step. And what's interesting, when we were talking about this scene this week, and by God's grace, he's doing very well now, so I'll just relieve the tension. It's still kind of a strange mystery, but all the scary, gnarly things are being ruled out. But in this moment, Jesus, how are you coming to me? He said, you know how I wanted him to come? Superman. To just lift me up to just bypass all of this craziness that he's endured in the last two months and all the tests, we want Superman. And he said, no sooner do I perceive this question, Jesus, how are you coming to me, that I get my answer, and it was Isaiah 53. Those of you who've been around some Good Fridays and are familiar with this passage, it's commonly called the suffering servant. Jesus How are you coming to me? Isaiah 53, scorned and afflicted by men, considered to be stricken and cursed by God, mocked and led like a lamb to the slaughter. The problem is we want Superman every single day, and that's not wrong to want that. The problem is what do we do when Jesus comes to us as the lamb who was slain or the child in the manger? I'll take a Herod, thank you very much. At least he gets things done. Advent is the season that has to reckon with the one who laid it all down to be held and nursed and weaned and consoled, the God of the universe held in a mother's arms. This is how Jesus comes to us. And how might it change our journey through the bumps and bruises and twists and turns of whatever hallway you're facing to understand that love is a journey toward an other that's always costly, sometimes complicated, never exploitative, and can't help but give because it's given by the God who is love who always journeys toward us. This is gospel. When you are so concerned about how you get to God, God gets to you. But my righteousness is, yes, but God got to you. Yeah, but I'm the prodigal son rehearsing my speech. The father is running to you. And maybe the answer to the question is not the lamb who was slain tonight. Maybe it's Abba Father from the love poem who's running down the road to embrace you and meet you this Advent season and say, you'll never be more loved than you are right now. My son and my daughter, your beloved, your home, let's celebrate, let's party because what we have is this moment right now, you and me, beloved, I'm journeying to you and you thought you had five more miles of penance to go. You need only turn in this moment and see I'm wrapping my arms around you. God journeys toward us. When we couldn't get to God, God gets to us. In child and in the lamb who was slain and in the risen savior who goes ahead and has conquered sin, death, and evil itself. Make no mistake, he's stronger than Superman. But however he's coming to you, I assure you, he's coming to you. Would we see him with or without a star, with or without all the signs and astrologers of the East? Would we have eyes to see that he is coming 
to us. So here's my questions as we close, and I'll invite the worship team up. How is Jesus coming to you on this journey this week? In the busyness and the hustle and the last minute shopping, Jesus is coming to you right now in this moment. How do you perceive he's coming? Have you not seen him because he's not what you wanted or expected? We're looking for Superman and we get the infant. Finally, have you not been looking at all? No matter, he's coming to you now. Right, right now, literally now. God is the God of the present moment. All we have is right now. He's coming to you. He's inviting you to rest, to repent, which is a way of turning your face and your feet back toward him because what matters is the progress and the process, not the speed. So would we see him as the one who has come and is coming even now in our midst. Amen. May the God of light who shines in darkness and always journeys towards us open to us the treasure of your grace. May we search diligently for Christ in our everyday places as we prepare for Christmas so that we may offer our lives to you with thanksgiving, joy, and praise. Through Jesus Christ, our hope, peace, joy, and love. Amen and go in peace.